Well, one of the unique things that, uh, and wonderful things about IBCD, which a lot of us appreciate and we talk about fairly often, is just the diversity of cultures and backgrounds that all meet in this one place. We often talk about that uh, the world kind of meets at IBCD on, on Sundays and then goes back out uh, into the world to influence people from all kinds of different uh, languages and backgrounds and countries. And even though we, uh, but the truth is, and this is something that uh, we also have to deal with, is that even though we do everything in English here, sometimes the way we hear things, even though we're using the same language, is different. And a lot of it has to do with kind of our cultural backgrounds, even the ways that we gesture. You know, one of the things I notice that we use a lot of in texts and all that is the thumbs up. Uh, are you aware that the thumbs up in some cultures is an obscene gesture? And, uh, and I just kind of wonder what goes through the people's heads sometimes when they, uh, you know, when they, it's, they see our text or they see pictures of us with our thumbs up and they're going, oh, what is wrong with these people, you know? And, uh, but it's just the way it is. And I think you know, one of the things we've mentioned is if you're going to be here at IBCD, you cannot be easily offended because, you know, it's just, we just share who we are. And there are just some things about uh, our cultures which don't necessarily translate. And gender and culture and even our personal history and church history also play into the question of who Jesus is. And how one answers this question of the who, is who Jesus is pretty much determines how you live your life. It determines how you live your life today. It determines how you're going to live your life for eternity, either with him uh, in eternity in heaven or separated from him in soul-searing agony. And this essential question of who Jesus is, is one that really defines biblical Christianity. Because Jesus is a character in many different uh, religions. Jesus is, is mentioned more often in the Quran than Muhammad is, for example. Jesus is the central char character of, yeah, you hear, you've heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons. But the thing that separates biblical Christianity from these other definitions, of these other religions, is this question of how it's answered. Who is Jesus? And Mormons, for example, say Jesus is a super-evolved human being. As human beings, we go through this process of life, and if we're good Mormons, we end up becoming gods of our own planet. And Jesus is just kind of a super-evolved human being. Yahweh is his physical father. Jesus also has a mother, the, the consort of God. This is not something that we find in the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is the first creation of God. Uh, they often will say the archangel Michael is also Jesus. This is not scriptural. In fact, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is not an angel. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet. And he's going to come and straighten us out one day. And in fact, in the Quran, Jesus preaches as a baby from the cradle to tell folks... You guys, there's going to be this big mistake where people say, I'm more than I am. Which is interesting because even in the Bible, we don't have Jesus preaching from the cradle. So who is Jesus? And I think for most of you, you have in your mind a definition of Jesus, which is pretty biblical. But you have to understand that maybe if you grew up in the church or if you heard this teaching a lot of that, who is Jesus, what has become almost second nature to you is, is a complete mystery to some people. And in the time of Jesus, there was also a mystery as to who exactly this guy was, because he was making claims 
But he wasn't fulfilling expectations that the Pharisees had and that the Jewish people had of what their Messiah should be. And I know that as a, as a believer, sometimes it can even be frustrating for us because in our Western mindset, we would love a statement of, from Jesus something like this. You know, I am God Almighty in the flesh, speaking and acting in the full authority of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I am and always have been and always will be, so shut up and listen. We would love to have a very forceful, straightforward statement like that, but instead what it seems we get is a bunch of these kind of circular arguments about who he is. But what we have to understand is that for the Jews listening to Jesus in his time, they understood what he was saying. He was speaking to them in their worldview. He was speaking to them in the way that they understood the scriptures. He was making a lot of subtle uh, uh, inferences when he would talk to them, which would get, their, get the wheels of their mind rolling because these folks grew up with the Old Testament stories being told to them again and again and again. And they understood exactly what Jesus was saying. For example... The only reason why we find any significance in this verse, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The only reason why we even understand the significance of Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am, is because we have been educated. We have been taught through the church, or maybe you've been taught, you've taught yourself, or maybe for some of you this is a, a, all new, but we've been educated as to who Abraham was. We've been educated as to what the significance of the statement, I am, is, because of the whole burning bush and Moses' encounter with God. We understand the significance of this statement because we've been educated into it, but the Jews understood the significance of this statement because they lived it, they breathed it. This is how the, the vernacular was. If you ever talk to someone who's... Uh, a Muslim from, from, for example, like Afghanistan, you'll just notice their language is just constantly filled with references to God. It's just the way they talk. Everything is da-da-da-da-da, inshallah, if God wills it, da 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 That's kind of how the Jews were at this time. This is, you know, everything. They didn't have TV. They didn't have everything. The, the stories they grew up with, and they breathed, and they heard, and they lived, and they identified with, they knew who Abraham was. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, they pick up stones because they know Jesus is claiming to be God among them. In fact, they say so. Jesus says, for what are you stoning me for? They go, you being a mere man claim to be God. They knew what he was saying. So for the last month or so, we've been going through these questions that the religious leaders have been asking Jesus and uh, one of them was from the Pharisees. It was, a, it was a political question about taxes. The other one was from the Sadducees about the resurrection. Uh, then the Pharisees come back to him and they asked him a question we went over last week about what's the greatest commandment. And now after, as Jesus, as they've been asking him all these questions and he's been answering them in ways that are completely unexpected, Jesus then asks them a question. And so we were looking in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46 today, and it says this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Now, the Christ means the Messiah. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put my, your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, 
And from that day on, no one dared to ask them any more questions. Now, I don't want to sound irreverent or disrespectful, but from my worldview, my culture, from the sort of the way I see the world, I, always, I, often, I used to struggle with this verse a lot, especially, you know, probably the first 10 years of my faith, maybe even longer. I just didn't understand it. I didn't understand why is this a big deal. What is significant about this verse, to be honest with you? And so, you know, I had to do a bunch of digging about that. Because I wanted to find out why this impacted the Pharisees so much that they said they could not say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What was the big deal about this question? Well, I've mentioned before that the Gospel of Matthew has the most references to the title Son of David than all the other Gospels. Son of David is, is lifted up in the Gospel of Matthew more often than in Luke, more often than in Mark, more often than in John. And as we've been going through Matthew, we've seen this title is used by some unusual people. There's a Gentile woman, a non-Jewish woman, when they're even outside the, the territory of the Jews who came to him with a daughter that was, she wanted her healing for her daughter. And you remember they had this weird conversation where Jesus is like, you know, I came for the children, and she says, you know, not for the dogs. You know, it's this, it's this harsh conversation. But then he eventually heals her and commends her for faith. There's also two different instances in Matthew, two different ones where blind men who hear that the Messiah is coming, they use the title Son of David. They start shouting out, uh, have mercy on a Son of David. This happens twice. And, David, and Jesus it gets Jesus' attention, and he heals them. And then as he comes in upon the donkey just a few days before when this was happening, this question was being addressed to him, or he's addressing them with this question. He came in on a donkey, and the son of David was on the lips of praise as the people shouted out, Hosanna is the son of David to the son of David. And so it's a big deal. And I think it's important for us to understand and to get our heads around that at this point, the Pharisees get that Jesus believes he's the, uh, the Messiah. The Pharisees understand what Jesus thinks about himself. This is part of the problem the Pharisees have with him. They understand that Jesus believes he is the Messiah. And in fact, understanding this about Jesus is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees think that Jesus is dangerous. Now the Pharisees, they want to make sure that if Jesus is the Messiah, that he can prove it. Because so far, everyone who's claimed to be Messiah, who stood up and tried to fight the Roman Empire, has ended up dead, and there's been a lot of Jewish blood that flowed with them. And in addition to that, the Pharisees aren't impressed about the way Jesus approaches the law. When he says things like, it doesn't matter what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your mouth, through the overflow of your heart that makes you clean or unclean. That sounds like great wisdom to us, right? It's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's the way you express yourself, the hate that can come out of your mouth, or the, or the vitriol, or the lies. But the Pharisees are like, mm -mm -mm -mm. what goes in your mouth and in your stomach, that also makes you unclean. And Jesus, you can't just sweep that aside. They have a problem with him. They have a problem with the way he defines the Sabbath. Jesus says, Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are like, wait, what, what? And working on the Sabbath, and when Jesus would heal a person on the Sabbath, or his disciples were picking heads of grain so they could have something to eat, they were not impressed. 
Because Jesus did not follow their expectations of the Sabbath. But what made him dangerous is that the people loved him. The people were going after him. They had just witnessed a few days before that as Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, people shouting out praise, taking off their cloaks and putting it before the donkey so that the the donkey would walk on the, the cloaks instead of touch the ground. They were freaking out because the hearts and minds of the people were going over to this Jesus guy. And the Sadducees, the Sadducees probably thought the whole Messiah thing was just nonsense because it had to do with the resurrection. And you remember we talked about the Sadducees. They didn't even believe in the resurrection anyway. But if Jesus, if the people got whipped up to follow Jesus, the Sadducees were concerned because the only authority the Sadducees really had was given to them by Rome because they were the group of Jews that worked in the temple that were willing to cooperate with Rome And so they didn't want things to get out of hand because if the peace of Rome was violated, the Pax Romana, and Rome had to come in and straighten things out, then the Sadducees would probably lose their influence, which is exactly what happened to them. 70 years after Christ, not quite 70 years, actually 70 AD, so probably about 40 years after Christ, there was this uprising, this this rebellion, and the Romans came in and squashed it, and they destroyed the temple pushed all the stones of the temple off of Temple Mount. To this day, there's not been a temple built there since. And the Sadducees, indeed, lost all their influence. They lost all the influence they had with the people. And as a group, the Sadducees ceased to exist. The Pharisees continued to exist, but the Sadducees were gone. So what's the big deal here? Well, Jesus asked them this question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees, in response to that, they responded without hesitation. Now, again, you have to read the scriptures and and understand kind of what's going on here. Almost every other time when Jesus asked the Pharisees a question, they would huddle up in a group and they would talk to each other. They would say, what are we going to answer? How are we going to answer this? For example, when John the Baptist, he asked, you know, is John the Baptist, you know, what's the story about him? The Pharisees, instead of answering, they got together and they started talking. You remember? And they said, well, if we say that he was a prophet, then Jesus will say, well, why didn't you listen to him? And if we say he wasn't a prophet, then the people will get mad because they, and so they committed not to commit. And this would happen often. The the Pharisees would kind of get together and talk about things. But when Jesus asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They answer immediately, the son of David. There is no hesitation. They answer immediately, the son of David. Why? Because they had this. They knew this. This had been, this had been decided by rabbis all, all across time. That the Messiah was going to be the descendant of David. When they say son of David, they mean the descendant of David. And this was clearly understood. This was not debated. This was not up in the air. This was not something they wondered about. This was one of the few things they had nailed down. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Son of David. Boom. We've got this one. And why is this a big deal? Well, this is kind of trying to get into the mindset of the the people at the time, and it's important for us to be able to get there a little bit to understand what this passage means. After the both of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah fell, About 450 B.C. is when the kingdom of Judah is finally uh, overthrown by the Babylonians. Not overthrown, crushed by the Babylonians. 150 years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel had been crushed. 
The people were taken into exile. And there was a real sense of all being lost. The tribe known as the Israelites at this point, if they followed the same pattern that countless tribes have followed before and since then, they would have disappeared from history. I went to the museum in Berlin a couple years ago. My family were there, and there's this big museum about the history of Germany. And there's this one display that talks about kind of Germany being, uh, you know, populated. And there's this one point they just list all the different tribes. You know, the, the German tribe doesn't really exist. That's just what the Romans called this group of tribes that were, uh, you know, in the northern kind of northeastern part they were the, the Germans, but they were really made up of many, 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 many different tribes. And I, I don't know, uh, I've never had a German tell me I'm from this tribe. I've never had a German say I'm from the tribe of the Asteri. I'm from the tribe of the Ostrogoths. You guys are German, what tribe are you guys from? <laughs> yeah, you got to look it up. They've been lost. Lost to history. Time moved on and left them behind. Some were lost in battle. Some were just lost as they were absorbed by other cultures, but they've been lost. And after Israel, what happened to these people? They were defeated in battle. Their temple was destroyed. This is the first time it was destroyed by the Babylonians. It's the last time we hear about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant disappears at that point, and there's all this speculation even to this day. Where is the Ark of the Covenant? What happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Was it destroyed by the Babylonians? Did it get hidden somewhere in Temple Mount? Was it taken to Ethiopia? There's all these, these ideas about the Ark of the Covenant because it just disappears at this point. Poof. The land is no longer considered the land of Israel. It's no longer considered the land that God gave the promised people. And they, on top of everything were removed from their land. The best and the brightest were removed in two waves. The book of Jeremiah talks about this. They took the best and the brightest. Daniel, for example, was among that group that gets taken from the best, and they're taken into Babylon. And the idea is, away from their land, away from their language, away from their God, away from everything, these people will disappear into the midst of history. But they don't. In this kind of quick turn of events, it feels very quick when you read it, Babylon eventually gets conquered by Persia, and there's this guy who's the cupbearer to the king. And he hears about, you know, and his name's Nehemiah, and he hears about how people are just kind of mocking this pile of rocks on this hill that used to be Jerusalem. Yeah, there's this people, they, they talked about how their God was going to protect them, how their God was unique. And Nehemiah hears about this and he's weeping in the presence, of, or he's sad in the presence of the king. And the king notices, and if you've read the book of Nehemiah, the king basically tells him, well, go back. Take your group and go back. And when they go back, they're not really given a land, they're just basically given Jerusalem and some of the land around it. And they're still very firmly under the thumb of the Persian king. But at least it was something. And what's interesting is during that time in exile, there were 70 years they were in exile in Babylon. 70 years. The book of Ezekiel is written from the perspective of an exile in Babylon. During that time, their language, their culture, and their religion was all affected by the language, culture, and religion of Babylon. It doesn't mean it was changed, but it was influenced. And it wasn't all bad. 
One of the things that came out of the, the exile, for example, and if you've been in our, our Bible study on Thursdays, we talked about this quite a bit, was that there came out of this exile a much more developed understanding of God having this adversary and that there was an adversary that was very much against the desires of God and trying to hurt the people of God. And this adversary was not equal to God, but he was formidable and he was full of hate. And he would accuse the people of their sins without mercy. And he was called the accuser or the Satan. And this Satan, as we've come to know him, is a being that is in active opposition to God, seeking to cause men to fall, and men and women to fall into their deeper into their brokenness. Also, the people of Israel started being known as the people of Judah. And so instead of being known as Israelites, they started to be known as Jews. And this is where this begins to change. And you don't hear about them being called Israelites. You hear them being called Jews. And today, what are they called? Israelis. You know, so you have these kind of this change sort of based on the political circumstances that they're in at the time. And one of the figures that gets kind of, not necessarily reimagined, but he, his story is told as they go back from exile to Jerusalem, he becomes the model of what it means to be the perfect king is the story of David. There's Cyrus. Not keeping up very well with my slides today. But David. And this is a, a medieval painting of David. And first of all, medieval painters would always paint biblical characters in their garb, in medieval garb. Isn't that strange? If you ever look at the paintings like, like in the museums, like the, guard, the Roman guards would be dressed like Spanish conquistadors or something like that. Because I don't know why, but they wouldn't really translate back to the historical. They would just paint things the way they were. So David here is dressed up basically like a European king, looking pretty white. Got his little his, his crown on with the halo, playing his harp. This is kind of the, the idealized David. Right, this is the idealized David. And it doesn't mean it's a false David, but it's an idealized David. And when you go back in 1 Chronicles, the book of 1 Chronicles is written after the exile. And if you read it, there's a bunch of lists. It's very, uh, it's very much who is descendant from who. Because as they were reestablishing themselves in Jerusalem, they wanted to use the model of David as the perfect warrior, king, and prophet around which the nation's identity would be built. Does that make sense? We do the same thing. Like if, as Americans, I've told you this before, as Americans, we kind of have this in our founding fathers, George Washington. And my generation, in, in, in any ways, was always taught, you know, George Washington never told a lie. And there was this little story about George Washington cutting down a cherry tree when he was a kid. Why he decided to be a, you know, cut down a cherry tree, it doesn't say. And his dad says, who cut down this cherry tree? And George Washington says, I cannot tell a lie. I did it. And we're told this story as kids. And it never happened. But it's this mythology that's kind of built around the people who are our founding fathers that the, that the identity of the nation was built around. It's one reason why in the U.S. they're freaking out about something called critical race theory because we don't want these idealized people to be in any way really scrutinized so closely that we learn that George Washington was actually also a slave owner. And he wasn't a very nice slave owner on top of that. And that, in fact, is the bizarreness of the U.S. is that you have Thomas Jefferson who writes, we behold these truths to be self-evident. One of them is all men is created equal. 
was himself a slave owner. How can you say we hold the self-evident that all men are created equal and yet you own slaves? Those are the sorts of things which are incongruous, so we want to ignore them. And we just say, let's ignore that. Let's put their faces up on a big stone mountain and say, these are the faces of the men that define our nation. Well, that's kind of what David, that's what they did with David. They wanted him to be the ideal. And so when they talk about David, when the Pharisees talk about David, when they say the son of David, this is who they're expecting. They're expecting a Messiah who is going to be the king and who is going to put Israel back on top. And every good and noble thing about David is the Messiah. In First Chronicles, again, if you read this story of David from chapter 10 to the end, Bathsheba is never mentioned. Absalom is never mentioned. The other various, uh, the, the crazy dysfunctional relationship between David and Saul is never mentioned. In fact, Chronicles begins with David, uh, begins David's story. Saul's dead, David's king. And it goes on from there. This is what they were expecting. This is son of David. Not some guy that lusted after Bathsheba and arranged to have her husband killed. That's not who they're thinking when they say, who is the Christ, the son of David? They're thinking a guy like this who's going to put the kingdom back on top. He would be magnificent. And not only that, but in the time of Jesus, because of the Roman oppression that had followed the Greek oppression, there was, there was kind of a fevered pitch getting built up for the coming of the Messiah. Not so different from us today. When the, you know, Corona going on, or back in the year 2000, when you're going to have the new millennium, oh my gosh, people were freaking out. This is the end of time. The Messiah is coming right now. It was more so then. The Messiah is coming. He's going to put this beleaguered, downtrodden people who miraculously still exist back on top. But instead what they get is this guy who's claiming to be Messiah, who's hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. He's walking around preaching to folks, saying things about the law like, well, it doesn't matter what you eat. It just matters what comes out of your mouth. He's not the guy that they're expecting. Jesus, this guy's talking about loving your enemy. What? I'm not going to love the Romans. I'm going to drive them out. I'm not going to love the Samaritans. They're a bunch of mongrels. They're a mongrelized race. That's what they would think. It's a horrible thing to say, but that's how they thought. That's why the story of the good Samaritan is supposed to kind of be catchy. Samaritans were despised. However, in spite of all the expectations they had of the Messiah being the son of David, And in spite of the fact that he was going to be amazing, he was still just a man. He was not expected to be divine in any way. He was a man, a great man, glorious man, but not divine. And this is where Jesus and the Pharisees are at odds because Jesus is clearly claiming to be the Messiah. But he is not fulfilling the, the Pharisees' expectation of Messiah at all. He doesn't seem to, he's not, he's not a stickler about the law. He's not concerned about the political situation. He's not fulfilling their expectations at all. And on top of that, he is making huge claims about being God himself, about being divine. 
He doesn't claim to be the Father. But he does claim to be the very character and nature of the Father. He tells Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he claims to be coming in the name of the authority of God. When he changes the law, you have heard it said, but I tell you, when you go around changing the law of Moses, who has the right to do that? Who has the right to change the law? Only God. And so they are deeply confused by Jesus. On the one hand, you're underperforming in that you're not being its military leader. On the other hand, you're making claims that are like, to divinity, you being a mere man, claim to be God. So when the Pharisees respond confidently that, well, the Messiah is going to be the son of David, then Jesus leads them on into this conversation. He says, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if then David calls him Lord, then how can he be his son? And this is confusing to us, right? I mean, I wasn't the only one, I don't think, that for several years were like, I do not get this one. I'm not quite sure why this is a big deal. Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's taking a psalm called psalm, psalm 110. And it's an interesting psalm because it's a psalm that was written while David, and, and, the, and you see this in the, in the Old Testament, there are times it said David would be writing with the Spirit of God. And Jesus even says that when he says, if you look what he says here, look what he says very carefully. He says, how is it then David, when speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? So this Psalm 110 is kind of seen as a, a psalm that David was writing while he was in a place of heightened spiritual awareness, while he was in the Spirit, however you want to describe what it means to be in the Spirit. That's where David was. And while he was there, it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now that last line, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, is found also in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. This is seen as a very messianic psalm. And what we don't get sometimes in the language is what, what's happening here is when David, when he says, I don't know if this part's going to work, when he says, the Lord there, oh, there you go. In the Hebrew, that's written in the Tetragrammaton, which is, what we kind of translate, what we do translate, we're not quite sure if it's the way it's supposed to be pronounced, but this is Yahweh. This is the Lord Almighty. And others, just to kind of back up, there's about three or four ways that God is referred to in the Old Testament. One is El, that's just God. And, and Israelites and non-Israelites used El. Ba'el is like always the bad guy, God in the, in the Old Testament. Ba'el, he's, El part is God. Elohim which is often translated as God or God Almighty. It's plural, interestingly. Adonai, which is often translated as Lord or Lord Almighty with little L-O-R-D. And then Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, which means it's four letters in the Hebrew, and this is always capitalized. And this is God Almighty. So really what it says here, it says, Yahweh said to my Adonai, 
So it's as if David is there and he's having this, this kind of vision and he sees the Lord Almighty, God Almighty, Yahweh, the one from whom all things come, speak to this other character who David calls his Adonai, his Lord. So he says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make, till I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. And so then the question then becomes, who is between Yahweh in heaven and David on earth? Who is this character, this person that David is seeing or expressing where he says, my Lord Yahweh said to my Adonai, be at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Who is this? Who is this person? And this is what Jesus gets to when he asks him this question. He goes, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Adonai, calls him Lord? Because what should happen is that if this Messiah is just simply the physical descendant of David, then David would see himself as superior to him. Because just like as you like most cultures, father, son, the father is kind of considered superior to the son, at least socially. But David is putting this guy above him. This descendant of his is someone that he's calling his Adonai. And this Adonai, this descendant of his, has a unique relationship with God Almighty. So God Almighty said to my Lord. This is why it's important. And when Jesus points this out to them, what is he inferring? Because he believes he's the Messiah. And so what is he trying to tell the Pharisees? David, whom you guys idolize, understood that the Messiah is going to be superior to him. That the Messiah is going to be something more than human, while at the same time from the line of David, fully man and yet fully divine. And this is where the Pharisees go, hmm. No one could say anything in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So again, we see Jesus taking this conversation with the Pharisees to an unexpected direction. And they don't know how to respond. They don't know what to make of that. I mean, they clearly read right over this psalm. They knew what he was talking about because he says, who's the Messiah? Whose son is he? Boom, they're there, son of David. And then he says, okay, then why does David revere him if he's his descendant? If all he is is his descendant, why is this reverence given to him? And they don't know what to say. Because Jesus is telling them that the Messiah is something more than just simply the descendant of David. That he is a human being, for sure. But he's more than that. And they don't understand why even the Messiah would have to be more than that. We understand it at the cross. Because as a human being, Jesus is the perfect representation of humanity. But he's not broken. He's not broken by sin. And so he's like a vessel that doesn't have any cracks or holes in it. And the sins of humanity could be poured into that vessel and they wouldn't just leak out. If Jesus was just a normal human that sinned and had problems, like, the, like David really did, then maybe Jesus could die for his own sins, but he couldn't die for our sins. And he certainly couldn't die for the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. How is that possible? He has to be more than human, and yet at the same time, he has to also be fully human. The church, early church came up with this little formula. They said Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. And you can just kind of take your own time trying to wrap your head around that one. 
Because that's, that's been a discussion that's been had for the last 2,000 years. What does that mean? It's true, but what does it mean? And so for the Pharisees, Jesus' message is clear. He's saying that the Messiah is divine. And the book of Hebrews, you really get into the messianic aspect of, I mean the divine aspect of the Messiah. It talks about he is our high priest who goes into the presence of the Lord making sacrifice for us. He is his own sacrifice. You know, he's the, the final sacrifice once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. You see this a lot in the book of Hebrews. He was given authority over creation by God himself. And since Jesus understood himself to be the Messiah, the Pharisees realize that he believes that everything he's saying, his speaking, his teaching, the performing of miracles, the casting out demons, is all with the authority of God Almighty himself. And this makes him dangerous. And this is why it so quickly turns from being Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to on Friday, he's being crucified. Because they get it, and it terrifies them. But the question upon the resurrection becomes even more significant, though. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked his disciples this. Remember he asked Peter, he goes, what do they say about John the Baptist? What do they say I am? Actually, they start about John the Baptist. Then they say, who do, who, do, who do they say I am? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you're a prophet. And then Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And you remember Peter's confession of faith, right? You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this is get told to you, not from yourself, but from the Father. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Who do you say Jesus is? I know a lot of you have, a, have an understanding, kind of a, a somewhat of a grasp of Jesus' divinity. But if you're a lot like me, when I became a believer, I was very much a New Testament-oriented Christian. I just followed this person, Jesus. I liked Jesus. He seemed like a, a wonderful guy. And I didn't quite get everything that he was. And it wasn't until after I became a Christian and I started looking at Jesus, I had to learn, who is this that I'm following exactly? Who is this guy? All these things that I don't understand that he's saying, what does this mean? And I hope that for you, that you've gone into that journey of trying to understand that, because for me, it's been one of the most enriching journeys of my faith, to go back into the Old Testament and see how Jesus is incorporated, in, the Messiah is incorporated into the Old Testament and is expressed in Jesus the Christ. It's pretty fascinating stuff. It's faith-building stuff. To understand that this is something that has been going... We have in the Bible this epic story that has been leading to Christ and leading even to a time beyond ours right now, where we, a book of Revelation where you're in the presence of God. But in that entire time, you have this amazing story of this tribe that for every intents and purposes should have been gone from the pages of history. But they persisted. Why? Because they had the hand of God on them. They were going to be used to tell the story of the Messiah. And even being downtrodden led to the Messiah coming into a situation where he was going to be the most effective, where he was going to preach under the oppression of the Romans and be killed for it. And it would make sense because he's disturbing the peace of Rome is what he's actually crucified for. 
so that he could raise on the third day to prove to the world around him and for all of history that he is indeed everything that he said that he was. The resurrection is the vindication of Jesus Christ of everything he said and did. And our faith, that's why it says, if you believe, then you'll be saved. Do we, if you believe in this person and what he did, what he said about himself, what his personal history was, and you give your life to following and trusting him, then you'll receive his presence into your life by the Holy Spirit. And by that spirit, you will start to come to know God in a deeper, much more personal and tangible way. Without the spirit, all these are just kind of stories on the wall. With the spirit, they become your life. And it's a life that you will eventually realize is not ending at your death, but it goes on to something that is greater than anything we can even imagine, where we live in the presence of God in a heaven populated by faith. So who is Jesus to you? I think many of you would say, he's my Savior, he's my Lord. You may not get that, what it means 100%, but you have enough. You have enough to, by faith, say, I put my faith in him. But maybe you're here and you don't know. You've always kept Jesus kind of at arm's length or... You know, it's a story. You hear that a lot here. Oh, it's just a book of fairy tales. It's like, read it. It's not a book of fairy tales. It's a book of humanity and God in all of its ugly and wonderful glory together. Who is he to you? Because the way you answer that question is going to determine how you live now and forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that, yeah, your word speaks to us in profound ways, even unexpected ways at times. And we pray and thank you for your, well, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us in understanding, helps us to kind of translate the time and the culture into our time and culture so that the relevance of the scripture and the relevance of Jesus, the relevance of, of our need for our Savior is never lost. It's always set before us because we really, our technology has changed around us as humanity. The breadth of our knowledge has grown, kind of. But we're still the same people. And we're still in need of a Savior. And Lord, we thank you that you came, you broke into our history, you subjected yourself. The scripture says you, you empty yourself and took upon yourself the nature of, of humanity exposing yourself to what it means to live our life, hunger, anger, hatred, even death. But within that stream of time, you also rose again to give us hope that there is something more, that life is more than just living and dying, trying to acquire for ourselves the biggest pile of toys that we can to pass on to our children, to watch them waste it and use it and lose it as uh, Solomon said. So, Father, we thank you that we have this hope that is both of history and of eternity at the same time, just as Jesus was both man and God at the same time. The hope we have is now, and the hope we have is eternal. And we thank you for that. And we pray that you would help us to share that with others, not just pointing out sins and 
what you think is wrong, what I think is right, but to point out to them that Jesus gives them the hope for now and forever. And we praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.